Alleluia, Christ is risen. The fourth Sunday of Easter is known as Good Shepherd Sunday. And we always take a break at this time from the stories of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances to read one of the several passages from the Gospels where Jesus uses the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep to talk about our relationship with Jesus, with God, and with the reign of God to which we are called. So every year at this time, my clergy friends and I are all to be found wringing our hands and chatting on Facebook and exchanging emails with one another to see if any of us has any new angle on Jesus the Good Shepherd that might speak to our congregations in a fresh way. And the reason we all do this, I suspect, is that we don't really even have any old angles to approach the shepherd metaphor. Shepherds have been absent from the developed world for a long time. Even in the ranch land where I grew up, while there may be plenty of sheep farmers, I don't think there is anyone that Jesus would recognize as a shepherd, someone who lives with the sheep basically full time, camps out with them as they move from one pasture to another, and brings them back to the family farmhouse only for shearing, slaughtering, and wintering. <clears throat> Because this way of life is alien to us, we don't really understand the role of the shepherd or the sheep, and the metaphor is opaque to us. But apparently, it was opaque to the disciples themselves at first. Fortunately for us, though, the reading from the Acts of the Apostles offers us something more concrete, a description of what the first followers of Jesus thought living as the flock of the Good Shepherd should be. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So, Jesus lived among them and taught them and loved them and died for them and rose again and taught some more and ascends to the heavens and pretty soon the disciples are all communists, holding all their property in common. So how did they get from point A to what I guess we should call point C? First off, to understand what happened, we, like Jesus's first followers, have to make some sense out of this whole resurrection business. Why should resurrection matter? Jesus's message hadn't changed. The followers of Jesus had heard his teaching before he died. The disciples were told had been running around the countryside healing people and casting out demons in Jesus's name before that fateful trip to Jerusalem. Surely if Jesus had not returned, they would have worked their way through the grieving process and gotten back to work eventually. But Jesus's resurrection did change things. In fact, it changed just about everything. The content of Jesus's teaching was the same, but the context was now completely different. Because you see, when Jesus returned from the dead, it meant that the reign of God wasn't just very near, it was here. It meant that the forces of empire and death weren't merely destined to lose against love and life, they had lost. The whole order of the universe, 
in which the dead stayed dead and power was the property of the powerful, had broken apart and been made new. And yet somehow, much like the bread and the wine on the altar that are the body and blood of Christ, everything still looked the same. And the rest of scripture, the Acts of the Apostles and all of those letters to the struggling communities of Corinth and Thessaloniki and Ephesus and Rome, not to mention the book of Revelation, and even the rejected books like the Gospel of Thomas and the other so-called Gnostic Gospels, all of that is the record of Jesus's first followers trying to make sense of what had happened, trying to work out how to live in a changed world, how to be true not just to Jesus's teachings, but to his resurrection. And they tried all kinds of things. Communal living was one way they tried. The main point being that in that verse that we heard that says they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That is the fruit of living out the life of the flock of the good shepherd. As the Psalm puts it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Or in my own translation of the 23rd Psalm from my children's Psalter, with God for my shepherd, I have everything I need. That no one should be in need was the goal. And communal living was the first Christian's way of trying to achieve it. At times, scripture tells us, that goal was very hard to reach. Early Christians stole from the common purse or held back a portion of what they had with disastrous results. In Corinth, we learn from Paul, when the faithful gathered to try to live out Jesus's mandate to break bread in his name, some members of the community refused to share the food that they brought with others. So Paul instructs them that if they aren't going to share, they should eat their private food in private before they come and not make the Lord's Supper look like the pre-resurrection world order. Again and again, we read the followers of Jesus trying to work out how to live our resurrected lives in a world that doesn't seem to know that it has been transformed. Weighty questions get debated. Do you have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus? <clears throat> Just who is Jesus? Is he God as Thomas so fervently declared? Or is he human or something else entirely? What should be the place of women in the new community? How engaged should one be with the world while waiting for it to end? What about slavery? Should the news about Jesus be kept secret or publicly proclaimed? Is Saturday or Sunday the proper day for worship? Many, many questions. And the record that has come down to us shows many, many answers, many attempts to figure out how to live as resurrected people. Some of those answers got tried and rejected right away. Some of them worked well while the community was small, but failed as it grew. Some agreements take years to work out or even centuries of argument to reach them. And after all of that, the main question still remains for us. How do we live as resurrected people in a world that doesn't know it has been transformed? And there is no permanent universal answer to this question. The life and witness to the resurrection that makes sense in Huntington Beach today makes no sense in a village in Syria 
or in a suburb of Tokyo, or even nearby in the impoverished parts of Los Angeles or Riverside County. We, like our ancestors, must keep experimenting, keep adapting, and keep learning. Just as our ancestors finally figured out that although certain passages of scripture, certain attempts to figure out how to live as followers of the resurrected Jesus seemed to support slavery, it was nonetheless impossible in the end to live a life of resurrection without condemning and abolishing slavery. Even so, we are discovering that scripture notwithstanding, the resurrected life requires us to change our attitudes and practices with respect to women and sexual minorities. But if all of our answers, all of our solutions are provisional, how can we know what to do? How can we tell if we have the answer for right now? Well, that's actually an easy question to answer. It's right there in today's lesson from the Acts of the Apostles. It says, they would distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Jesus told us what the signs of the reign of God are. All are welcomed, all are fed, all are sheltered, all are healed, all are free. Those are the goals that must guide our choices in the organizing of a community, in the choosing of a new rector, in living under quarantine, in the worship of our God. And when we see the signs of the reign of God erupting in our community, when there is not a needy person among us, when the welcome of our house approaches the welcome of God's household, then it becomes perfectly obvious why we speak of Jesus's resurrection in the present tense. Not Christ was risen or Christ will be risen, but Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen.